new creation living. This week we want to talk about new creation relationships. Because uh, what Paul did last week was he, he painted this really cool picture of what new creation life can look like. What it can look like to be reconciled in Jesus. And it's a community that is putting away immorality, putting away greed, putting away idolatry. And instead putting on uh, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, and love. And then what Paul does is then he takes that kind of broad, theoretical, good-sounding stuff, and then he says, no, let's get real. Let's apply that to everyday relationships. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, how Jesus transforms all of our relationships. So on Monday, a former NFL player walked out of a prison in North Carolina after spending nearly 20 years behind bars. Ray Carruth was convicted of a conspiracy to murder when he arranged to have his pregnant girlfriend shot. He didn't want her to have a child. He was already dealing with child support issues. So he hired a hitman and callously blocked her in in her car so that she could not run from the hail of bullets. Miraculously, their unborn child survived, even as his girlfriend tragically lost her life. Now, 20 years later, as Karuth emerged from prison on Monday, he said he wanted a relationship with his son. Yeah, there's a catch. When Karuth tried to murder his son, he permanently disabled him. His son, a joyful young man named Chancellor, was born with cerebral palsy because of the complications of his emergency childbirth. I don't know if Chancellor will forgive his dad or even if his grandmother will ever allow Ray speak with his son. I don't know if prison has changed this murder. I don't know if he's genuinely sorry for what he did, but I do know that their relationship is forever complicated. Really complicated. While our own relationships might not be as tragic as that, they are still all fairly complicated. Some of us grew up in loving two-parent homes. Some of us never really knew our dads. Some of us saw a healthy marriage as we grew up, and others of us just remember brokenness and anger. Some of us have experienced the highs of falling in love. Others of us have experienced the heartache of betrayal. At home, we have complex relationships with our roommates, our landlords, our tenants, our neighbors. They never turn the music down at night. They yell at you because your baby cries at night. They want you to pay more rent than you think is reasonable. And then there's work, where some of us are thriving as we work with great people that are a lot of fun, and yet others of us work hard at work, and we just keep our heads down, try to avoid the office drama and the backroom politics. And relationships can be complicated even at church. Tragically, some of us have experienced gossip, slander. We've seen cliques form when we weren't invited. We've divided along lines of culture, politics, or gender. We've even divided along lines between singles and married folks, especially those with kids. Everyone, even the most introvert of introverts, is in some type of relationship. Because relationship is part of what it means to be human. And while our relationship might not be as complicated as that of Ray Carruth and his son, Chancellor, 
ours are still intricately complicated. The text before us is about relationships. New creation relationships. The first two are family relationships. The next one speaks to social relationships. And the final category in the text is that of spiritual relationships. Regardless of where you are on your spiritual journey, I think this text has something to say for you. So let's read it. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read. There's four different relationships talked about, and I'm going to read the part that goes with the first, and then we'll stop and talk about it. And then we'll read the part about the second, and then we'll stop and talk about it. Okay? So the first relationship that is described is that of husbands and wives. So let's look at verse 18 and 19. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Now you have to understand, as it begins to talk about family, as it begins to talk about the household, the household back then meant something a lot of times a lot different than now. Now, there, there's some overlap and some similarity for sure. But a lot of times when we think of a household, we tend to think of maybe a mommy, daddy, a couple of kids, maybe grandma. Uh, but back then, what a household typically entailed uh, was the family, some extended relatives, slaves, people renting the back room, some visiting migrants, and some homeless that you were putting up in your house. Um, and this is, ironically, where a lot of the churches, including this church, the church in Colossae, met. You're standing over by yourself. I don't know if he's okay. Um, these churches met in these homes, and they experienced all of this family life. And this family life included the mom and dad of the home. It included the guy who was renting that room in the back. It included the slave. It included everybody. There was this extended network. So family meant something much broader back then than it does now. And Paul decides to zero in on that family and start by talking about husbands and wives. Now, before we dive into specifically what he's calling husbands and wives too, I want us to go back to verse 11, which Sean preached on two weeks ago. Should be the same page in your Bible. Verse 11 says, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew. Circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. But Christ is all and in all. Paul gives this picture in the church of a level playing field where everybody has worth, dignity, and value before God. So our understanding of everything that he says about new creation relationships flows from that understanding, flows from that truth. That God is creating a new humanity. God is creating a new family called the church. And that is where we find our place. It works best when we find our place as God has defined it. And here's how he defines it for husbands and wives. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter to them. I want to start with some historical background. So it was very common back then. For wives, a married adult woman, to be under the authority of her father, even after she's married, her dad can tell her to get a divorce and she has to do it. Uh, she's not she's not part of a new family. She's not an adult. She doesn't get to make any of her own decisions. She's still daddy's little girl. Always. One of the things that Paul is doing here is he's disrupting that status quo idea. He's, he's like, no. 
you are you you left as it talks about in Genesis and as Jesus quoted in the Gospels. He says, "You leave your father and your mother, you cleave unto your wife, you cleave unto your husband, and you become one new flesh. You're creating a new family. So your primary allegiance is no longer to the home from which you came, but to the family that you are starting." One of the things that Paul is doing here is he's actually freeing a woman from the oppressive structures of that society. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher. His ideas were quite prominent back then, and here's what he said. He said, again, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. And the one's rule and the other is rule. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. Aristotle was a jerk. Um, he might have had some enlightened ideas, but he was a jerk, bottom line. And um, it's true, John. Um, <laughs> what Paul is doing is he is stepping into a world that is steeped in these ideas, and he's turning them upside down, and he's asserting that, yes, God has a proper order for how things are supposed to work, but he's doing it in such a way that honors dignity, creates worth, and creates value. Another important piece of historical background that helps us to understand this text. In Roman society, it was just assumed that husbands were flirts and that they regularly had sex with both their slaves and with prostitutes. Uh, in fact, the idea of not being bitter at your wife um, probably plays upon that imagery. The idea of, uh, it was just assumed that a, that a husband was out always uh, consorting with other women and that turns his heart towards bitterness towards his wife. So Paul is coming to a, a church in the city of Colossae that is just seeing all of these things and they're like, this is normal. And Paul's like, no, no, no. Let me show you a different and a better way. Wives, follow the leadership of your husbands. God has created them to be the leaders in your home. He's called them to lead. He's called you to follow. Now this week I read um, pages worth of material trying to explain why the idea that um, wives submitting to their husbands doesn't actually mean that. Um, and it's very interesting sometimes to see people try to do gymnastics to try to get around difficult verses of scripture. Um, but that is what it means. Uh, and no amount of gymnastics avoids that. And I'm not going to be a good pastor if I sidestep what is a text that might be, might be politically incorrect in 21st century America. What it means is that wives are supposed to follow the leadership of their husbands. But then what Paul quickly does is he, he shows what that looks like. He shows what that means. I want to go back to um, the Song of Songs. Um, earlier we were in Lamentations. Song of Songs is a book close to it in the Old Testament. It's a book about the physical relationship between a husband and a wife. Um, here's what the woman says uh, in the Song of Songs chapter 2. My love is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies before the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn to me, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the divided mountains. You've stolen my heart, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love and wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. This is the conversation between the husband and the wife. The picture that the Bible consistently portrays of marriage 
is of a husband and a wife who are so in love with one another, and the husband is doing what verse 19 says. He is loving his wife in a sacrificial way, choosing not to become bitter at her. And husbands, when you do that well, your wife will want to follow your leadership. If you love her well, she will want to do what verse 18 says. If you don't do what verse 19 says, she will not want to do what verse 18 says. It's that simple. God calls us as husbands, for those of us who have the privilege of being married, he calls us to a sacrificial love like Christ loves the church to lay down our lives for our wives, refusing to become bitter at them. One writer said that husbands who love like this, as 1 Corinthians 13 makes clear, do not make demands, do not overpower, and do not violate the integrity of a wife. A lot of times people ask Sonia, well, what does this look like uh, for a husband and wife to have this kind of relationship where the husband is the leader of the home? Does that mean if I wake up and say, I want pancakes, that Sonia has to get up and make pancakes? No, that's not what that, that's not what that means. Because that would be a violation of verse 19. What God is calling me to do is to tenderly and to graciously lead my wife. I don't always do it well but it's something that by God's grace I'm striving to do. And as I'm doing it, as I'm laying down my life and putting her first, together we're working through the difficulties. Together we're, we're figuring out what life looks like. And I'm leading. Now, there's probably been, I don't know, five or six times in our marriage where something important happened and I had to make a decision. Almost always. Sonia and I are able to work through it, and we pray about it, we talk about it, and by the time we've talked it out and prayed through it and, and wrestled through it and cried over it, like, we're on the same page, and we're, like, ready to do it together. Um, that's, what, that's what biblical leadership looks like. It doesn't look like being a despot. If you have to say, I'm the leader of the home, you're not. If you have to say, you're supposed to follow my lead, and you haven't gotten the point. So, for those of you who are married, those of you who are pondering marriage, those of you who one day may be married, or for anybody in this church who has a chance to speak into the lives of those who are married, which is everybody, um, here's where we go with this. Wives, I think we need to learn to follow. We need to follow the leadership of our husbands. And husbands... We need to make it easy for them by loving them really, really well. Because if you love them sacrificially like Christ loves the church, you will have that marriage that everybody dreams of. It's not Hollywood marriage, but it's actually better. It's actually better. If you have questions about how that fleshes out, um, or talk about it in our missional families, or come see me afterwards, or tell me afterwards. The second new creation relationship that is discussed in this text is in verse 20, and it's children and parents. Again, sticking with the theme of family relationships. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. So, two verses that talk about Parents and children. Now, what are what are children supposed to do according to this verse? Oh, we don't have it on the screen. Um, 
verse 20. What are children supposed to do? Obey, Obey their parents. Now, uh, probably most parents who are here like that idea. Uh, maybe maybe those who are, are uh, kids who are here, maybe, maybe on the background, maybe you guys don't like that idea. I don't know. Um, reality is, I don't remember if I liked this uh, so much when I was a kid. Most of us don't. We want to do our own thing. But what God is calling us to is to create a culture in the church where we are affirming that children have dignity, they have worth, they have value, and our responsibility is to call them into following Jesus. And that does mean teaching them right, and it means teaching them what not to do. It's just basic common sense that you have to teach your children to obey. Um, uh, maybe about a year ago, Xavier was like a runner, uh, and he would bolt out into the street unless we stopped it. Um, we had to teach him that that was not okay. We had to teach him when we say red light, that means you have to stop in your tracks on the sidewalk. You cannot just go into the, into the, into the street. Um, that's love. Now, society sometimes tells us that rules are not very loving. That if you, if you lay down law, that that can't possibly be grace. But laws actually can be steeped in grace. I give my children law because I love them. And my kids will tell me, and especially since Xavier at the stage that he's at, they tell me all the time, I don't want to take a nap. I'm like, I know. But I'm going to make you take a nap because it's good for you. But I don't want to take a nap. I know. And you're probably not going to want to take a nap until you're an adult, and then you realize how much you were missing out on. <laughs> but because you don't have the experience or the wisdom yet, I'm going to have to be the voice of reason and tell you that you need to take a nap and that there will be consequences if you don't take a nap. That's why on my bookshelf right now, there's a number of Xavier's favorite cars and trucks up on the shelf because he's taken them away uh, over the last couple of days because there's consequences, right, when we don't do what we're supposed to do. If you are a parent, God calls you to graciously teach your children how to obey. Not because we are trying to create good little kids. If you're a parent and, and you want to teach your kids to obey because you're embarrassed when they act out at church and it brings you shame, that's the wrong reason. Or if, if you just want to be able to have the, have the kid that's high performing and does the best at school and gets all the awards, that's a, that's a flawed reason. We are not trying to create moral people who grow up and die and go to hell. We are trying to, to cultivate a God awareness in the hearts and lives of our children. Whether they succeed academically is less important to me, although I believe in academics, obviously, as I'm still, still in school, feel like I've been in school all my life. I believe in academics. I believe in them getting a you know physical education and, and excelling in whatever they can excel at, ballet or whatever. But there is something greater. We want to create a God awareness in our hearts. And that means we have to teach them. There's a, there's a lot loaded into this idea of, of, of obeying our parents. It really speaks on the reverse side to the parents' responsibility to teach. We are always teachers. You may not have a teaching degree. You may send your, your kids to school for six, seven, eight hours a day. Um, but when they come back, what are you doing? You're teaching. But the book of Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy says. Like you're, you're teaching them in the morning, you're teaching them at night, you're teaching them on the weekends, you're teaching them when you lay down. And whether you have kids or not, this is our responsibility. The African proverb says it takes a village to raise a family. I believe that the best village is the, is the family of God. It's the church. I don't care if you have zero experience raising kids. Sonia and I need your help. The, because you have the Holy Spirit in you. And that means that you might see something that I'm missing. And you can speak into our lives and help us. That's what we believe about the church. That's what we believe about the family of God. It's not Our kids, it's not just... Stephen and Sonia think, yeah, we have a special responsibility before God to raise our kids, but you have the privilege of helping. And we have the privilege of helping you. So if, if you're hearing this, you know, well, I don't have kids, so I can skip over this point. No, you can't. We are in this together. We are our brother's keeper. Now, the next verse says that fathers should not exasperate their children. We've all either seen maybe done it ourselves, where we've flown off the handle, gotten angry, gotten frustrated, said something or done something that we shouldn't. Um, what God is calling dads to, just as God was calling husbands not to be tyrants, but to be gracious lovers and leaders, God is calling dads to be servant leaders in their home, who, yes, can lay down law, but do it with love. We don't lead out of fear, but out of love. But that means that we've got to throw a lot of stereotypes about masculinity out the window. Because they come from culture, not from the Bible. Do I have a picture up here, Dan? I think there's a picture. So uh, the, the TV anchor, Piers Morgan, this week tweeted out this picture to, of uh, the latest James Bond uh, actor. And he's carrying his son uh, in the... Uh, called the Urban Baby kind of thing. Um, and Piers Morgan said, oh, not you too, James Bond. And he said, hashtag emasculated masculinity. He said, then James Bond wouldn't carry uh, his baby like that. Now, I have no idea how James Bond would carry his baby. <laughs> but Piers Morgan is reacting to a stereotype of what he thinks a real man ought to be. And a real man doesn't change diapers, a real man doesn't carry his baby, a real man is not involved. You're aloof, you're distant, you're removed. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying the opposite of that. It's saying dads dig in, dads be there, dads be present. Don't exasperate your children, so that means you've gotta be tender and gracious and loving. Don't push them away. Make it where they're the, you're the one that they wanna hang out with. With you and mom, that they want to hang out and be with you. Not because you're letting them get, in, get away with everything, but because even as you lead and lay down law, you are doing it with grace. This is what God calls us to do. How do we apply it? I think as a family of faith, we take initiative to train children in the way that they should. And that starts by recognizing that the number one job of parents and of those of us who speak into the lives of parents is to create a God awareness in our kids. As Xavier was, was singing up here, we were singing, and I was like, shh, we're trying to sing about God. He's like, why did he cut off his ear? Um, he's really obsessed right now with this story of Judas and the soldiers coming into the garden and Peter cutting off the guy's ear and Jesus puts the ear back on. 
And so, so I'm going to have to explain that story to Xavier probably, you know, a dozen times a week right now. Um, and I explained it in the middle of church, uh, too. Um, what's happening is there, is there is a God awareness that is starting to shape, that is starting to form. And it's a God awareness that is far more important than anything that my son could ever do athletically or academically. And if you plan on being a parent, or if you are a parent, make sure that you are prioritizing the right things. Third, the third new creation relationship is that of social relationships. In this passage, that means masters and slaves. Now, this is a complicated issue to talk about, and I'm aware of the fact that I'm standing in a building that was once called the Slave Theater. Um, so let's read these verses. Let's talk it out. All right? Hang with me. Don't give up. Verse 22. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, Deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Now we have to start by reminding ourselves of human history. Slavery, uh, we, in America, we tend to think of slavery in terms of, of black people being enslaved, because that's the history of slavery in America. In the Roman Empire, it was different. Uh, slavery in the Roman Empire was different in two major ways. First off, uh, it wasn't racially based. So people of all different skin colors were enslaved in the Roman Empire. Uh, you were not enslaved based on your color or your perceived race. Uh, so that was one way it was different. It was also less severe. Um, American slavery was brutal, it was vicious, it was awful, um, it was satanic. Slavery in the Roman Empire was somewhat more benign, um, although I say that carefully because it was still evil and it was still wicked, it just wasn't quite as bad as what we think of when we think of slavery. Um, another important thing that we need to grapple with as we approach this passage, Paul was not a social revolutionary. Okay, He was a preacher. He wasn't running for office. Uh, he wasn't trying to pass a bunch of legislation or get certain initiatives on the ballot. But what he was is a preacher of a gospel that had socially revo revolutionary implications. So though he was not a social revolutionary, he preached a message that had socially revolutionary implications. I want us to go back on the same page and read chapter 3 and verse 11. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. So... Before Paul talks about any of this hard stuff, about relationships and hierarchies, he makes sure that we understand doctrinally that we're all, we're all united. And we're all the same, and we're all in the church. Um, that's the important context of this verse. And then he tells slaves that they are to obey their human masters. Now, the really ironic thing about this is that if you go over to Philemon, um, there's a very close relationship between Philemon and Colossians. In, in fact, maybe the, the same person took both the letters 
to the same spot to be read. And one of the ways that we know that is because in a passage that I'm going to preach to you next week, uh, it talks about a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave. We know that from one of Paul's other letters, the book of Philemon. And what Paul did is he took Onesimus, this runaway slave, and he sent him back to his master. It sounds counter to everything that we would do. We would be like, okay, run, hide him in our basement, like, let's set him free. Paul sends him back, and then he writes this really candid letter to Philemon, and he twists Philemon's arm, and he basically tells him to set him free. Because what he wants is for Philemon to learn obedience, for Philemon to learn what is right. And so Onesimus also turns up in this letter, and it says that Onesimus is going from Paul, and he's one of the people taking this letter, Colossians, to be read aloud in the church. Because what they did, I told you that the, most of the early churches met, at least in Colossae, they met in homes. So you've got, this, you've got this situation where you've got people that are all coming together for this public worship service. They're not all Christians yet. But because, but because the family is this extended network and you've got slaves and masters and you've got, you've got the migrant uh, guy renting the room out back and you've got the homeless person living on the couch, people that have just kind of come in. And so they're like, there's a church service happening in the living room. We'll kind of participate and see what's going on. And so you've got this, this kind of free-flowing church service and there are all these people from all these different social backgrounds who are hearing as this is read aloud because that's the way they, they read the Bible back then. Paul would write one letter, and it wasn't, it wasn't mass-produced. There was one letter. And so somebody would go, and, and he or she would say, hey, I got this letter from Paul, and they'd stand up, and they would read it. And everybody would just listen. And they would read from Colossians 1.1 until the end of Colossians. And so you've got people who are sitting there who are masters and slaves. In fact, you've probably got children sitting there hearing about how they're supposed to obey their parents and their parent is the master, and they are a slave, which is very common for masters to abuse and take advantage of their slaves. And so they're all sitting here listening to this, and they're kind of looking around at each other, and they're realizing how Paul is kind of redrawing the social map. He's turning all the conventions upside down, and what he tells slaves is to obey their masters, to not incite a revolution, there was this great fear that maybe Christians were going to like foment a rebellion against Rome. And Paul's like, no, that's not what we're trying to do. We're going we're gonna to blow Rome up from the inside. We're not revolutionaries. We're subversives. And so the best way to overthrow everything that is wrong with the empire is by following a different lord. Is by following a different king. And we're just going to do that in our everyday lives and he calls slaves to obey their human masters and everything don't work only while being watched as people pleasers but work wholeheartedly fearing the lord whatever you do do it from the heart as something done for the lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the lord because you're a slave to the lord christ not to your human master and then a warning for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. This verse is read out loud, and all the slaves, they kind of sit up on the pew. They cast eyes over at their master. Did you hear that? Oh, I hope you heard that. I want to make sure, should we write it down? Should we make sure that it makes it onto the dinner table tonight? 
the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Slavery is based upon favoritism. What Paul is doing is he's upsetting the whole thing. He's turning the, the apple cart upside down. And then he says, oh, and masters, you deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. In the companion letter of Philemon, when he sends Onesimus back, he's like, you're not allowed to treat Onesimus as a slave anymore. Now you treat him as your brother. Goes along with this verse. Deal with your slave justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. People tell me all the time, they're like, the Bible is, is pro-slavery. And I don't see that, and I don't get that, because when you read verses like this, when you compare it with Philemon, what Paul is saying is, you are no longer allowed to treat people the way that you used to treat people. There is a new social order, there is a new ethic, because Jesus is our theory of everything, it is transforming every square inch of society, and it is producing new creation relationships, including in society. Because if you treat a person as a brother, you cannot treat them as a slave. Could we agree on that? If you treat a person as a brother or sister in Christ, you cannot treat them as a slave. Paul is telling Christians in Colossae to get rid of slavery. He's telling them to chart a new path, one in which there is no Jew or Greek Barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. So how do we apply this? We have a lot of different social relationships, and, and in our social relationships, we see a lot of injustice. Maybe you don't know someone who's a slave, but you see injustice in American society. Here's what I think one way that we can apply this passage, and there's probably a lot, but I'd suggest that we trust God with injustice. The slaves were sitting there wondering when their masters were finally going to understand that the gospel liberates them. And they're, they're trusting God in the midst of injustice. And you and I are called to trust God even in the injustice of American society, even while we simultaneously work towards a more just society. And even while we work to treat our fellow man, especially our fellow believers, with more grace and more justice. Again, I know that's a complicated couple of verses there. If you have questions, if, you, if I haven't answered your questions, feel free to come up and talk to me. Um, the last relationship that is discussed in this passage is what I'm calling spiritual relationships. And it's believers and unbelievers. Look at verse 2. Paul said, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. <clears throat> At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Paul said, I am um, I'm in chains for promoting the mystery of Christ. Sean preached on this earlier in our, in our series. The mystery of Christ is that the fact that Gentiles get to be included into the family of God. That was a new thing. People didn't understand that before. And it's a really big deal because chances are most of us are not Jewish here. Probably most of us are 100% Gentile. All right? So that means none of us would be part of God's family 
if this mystery had not been revealed by Paul. So this is really staggering and really cool stuff. And Paul said, but that's why I'm in chains. Because people didn't like that message. So pray that God will open a door to us for the word to speak this mystery so that I may make it known as I should. And then he looks at the readers at Colossae and he says, act wisely toward outsiders. Make the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Think if he were here, he would say, online and offline. Make sure your speech is always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. You see, we're called to interact with people who are not Christians. Probably the majority of our neighbors or coworkers, maybe even our family members, are not Christians. And God calls us to act wisely toward what Paul calls outsiders, to make the most of the time, recognizing that we have been put in their lives for the purpose of bearing witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So he says, for this reason, our speech has got to be gracious. You can't be flying off the handle. You can't be saying awful stuff. You can't be tweeting what you just tweeted. Because it's happening in front of unbelief. And do you think they're going to want Jesus when they hear what you just said or read what you just tweeted? He says, let's, so let's make sure our speech is gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we know how to answer everybody. I want to propose two next steps today. You want to have them on the screen? First of all, honor Christ with the relationships that I'm already in. Honor Christ with the relationships that I'm already in. Second, help others at Mosaic to thrive in their relationships. Everybody here is in some sort of relationship, whether it's with a roommate, a landlord, a neighbor, a child, a parent, a spouse, a coworker. We're all in a relationship of some sort. Let's honor Jesus with the relationships that we're in, doing what he has called us to do from this text. And then second, Maybe just as importantly, let's help one another at Mosaic to thrive in our relationships. Let's help one another to be good friends. Let's help one another to be good neighbors, to be good parents, to be good children, to be good spouses, to be a good date if you're single, to be good neighbors. Let's help one another to thrive in our relationships. So I began by telling you the story of Ray Carruth and his son. It's complicated. And I'm not sure what's going to happen. But if there is any hope of reconciliation in a complicated relationship such as this, it's only through Jesus. He takes our relationships and he transforms them when we die to self. Give up our power serve others. So what we need to do this week is to ask ourselves, how will we allow Christ to transform 